You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, facts that have changed since we left school. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. Hi, everyone. My name is Ashlyn, and I will be your host today. With me, I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Jem Newman. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And special guest Marissa McCool. Hello again. Yay. We have all come together today to share some of my favorite things, which are things that have changed that you might not have realized changed. It is always fun to look up the list of common misconceptions, another favorite topic of ours, but this one is just things that aren't exactly misconceptions, but maybe outdated data, outdated things that I learned in school that just are, yes, maybe you learned them in school, but they're no longer correct. We're going to have a quick discussion of a bunch of different things, and hopefully it'll be a good time. First up, we have Lauren with one of the classic, I learned this in school. I had a list of a few depressing topics to do for this, but honestly, I'm in a bit of a funk, so I decided on a lighthearted topic about something that is mostly inconsequential. I graduated high school in 1998. That's 25 years ago now. But I'm going to talk about something I learned in grade two or grade three about how our taste buds work. We covered some of the science behind this in episode 118, The Senses. That was a fun one. We ate the, the berries that made everything taste sweet and everything. We'll give it a listen if you haven't. All right. Who remembers learning the taste bud nap? I do. I do. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. If you learned it when I did. Health class, I think. (laughs) Yeah. If you learned it when I did, so that was, oh, grade two or grade three, so that was 1989. (laughs) Yes. It it showed the the four. Yes, there was four tastes back then. Flavors that the human tongue could detect. In regions around the edge of the tongue, there was bitter in the back, sour at the sides, and salty and sweet near the front. It was nice and simple. It was a bit of tasty order in a chaotic world. And I remember there was a lot of like just so reasoning about why those zones were the way that they were. Like a bit yeah. toward the back of the throat so that you would like cough it up if it was bad for you. I don't know. Stuff like that. Yep. It's all it reminded me. It reminded me a lot of like the, the just so stories of evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, yes. we, we have a conclusion. Now we need to make up a story to justify it. Right. Like most things we learned in grade two, the science behind taste was radically simplified, as Jem said. And maybe like everyone should do some further reading on basically everything our grade school taught us about human biology. To the surprise of absolutely no one who has ever tasted food, taste buds are not arranged neatly in blocks on the side of your tongue. And there's an entire fifth taste, umami. 
So where did that map come from and why is it still being taught in grade schools? Is it still being yeah. taught? Yeah. Oh, I'm still seeing and I did a quick I did a quick Google and the taste map is still all over and like it's still in school textbooks and everything. And that's the answer to the second question because it's in the book and they haven't updated the books because updating facts is hard. Especially when all science textbooks in the United States are written in Texas. Yeah, I was going to say it it's it's not hard to get rid of facts down here. <laughs> It's certainly yeah. very easy to do that. All you have to do is convince them that people like me are trying to indoctrinate their kids with, I don't know, masks. Yep. Feathers. Evil, evil feathers. The taste bud map is an oversimplified take on a nuanced 1901 paper by German scientist David Hennig. Hennig was working from the known fact that the edges and tip of the tongue have stronger sensitivity to taste and he dripped stimuli in this taste belt around the edge of the tongue. He did not test for the umami, which was not known in 1901. It was proposed by Japanese chemist Ikuene Akita in 1908, and it joined the Western lexicon in a big way in the 1990s and early 2000s. When Hedeg wrote up his paper, he included a line graph of his measurements, and the graph plotted the relative change in sensitivity for each taste from one point to the next on the tongue, so these were not plotted against the other tastes. They were just plotted saying, this is more sensitive here. In the 1940s, a Harvard psychology professor named Edward Boring reimagined the artistic line graph plotting into the incorrect taste map that we know today. Boring's version also had no meaningful scale, leading to each taste's most sensitive area being sectioned off into what we now know as a tongue map. So it was because they took slightly nuanced science and went, oh, he's just saying it like this. They headlined it. <laughs> So how do our taste buds work done then? Your tongue is covered in tiny bumps called papillae. Go ahead. No one's looking at you. Touch your tongue. You can feel your tiny little bumps. I will not. Each of these... <laughs> Talking to our listeners there, Ashlyn. <laughs> Mine has a giant spike through the middle of it. So each of these papillae houses... Papillae. I'm sorry. I'm real bad at my science names. Each papillae houses several taste buds. And these all work together, along with the olfactory receptors in your nose, to perceive how food tastes. Taste buds came about because our body has needs. Sweet could let us taste berries, for which gave us antioxidants, and we could only gather foods. Bitter could give us a clue that something might be poison or rotted. It's a fairly well-known fact that cats can't taste sweet because they have no need for sweet things. I would refute this by how how fast and how hard some of my, the cats I've had in my life have gone after Slurpees, but apparently it's science, and I'm not going to refute that without hard evidence. <laughs> the average human adult has anywhere from 2,000 to 10,000 taste buds. We do lose taste buds as we age, which means that children have many more taste buds than adults. So that's also why sometimes kids won't like the taste of something because they have to get used to it because it's much more concentrated in their mouths. Of course, that sizes and numbers of taste buds, they vary from person to person because we're all unique. Taste buds inside look like peeled oranges. They have segments. And at the top is a taste pore, which is the, the opening that allows the flavors to come into contact with the receptors inside that are stored in these little segments. And these differences mean that although everyone detects the same five tastes, perceptions and experiences of these tastes vary because you might have different receptors in each case bud 
for a different taste. So the same taste bud will taste bitter and umami, but it might be in different amounts. Also wild, there are two different cranial nerves responsible for taste perception that in the different areas of the tongue. So this one is mapped off. The glossal pharyngeal nerve handles the one in the back of the tongue, and the cordia tympani, which is part of your facial nerve, handles the taste buds in the front. If our bodies followed the rigid taste map, damage to one of these nerves would cut off our ability to taste the corresponding flavor. So they've done Indeed. yeah, they've done tests where they've given taste taste tests to people who've had their corda tympani severed and they can still taste sweet. So that would debunk it right there. Yeah. Because the sweet was supposed mm-hmm. to be at the, t- at the tip of your tongue. Yeah, because the facial nerve is responsible for the forward two thirds of your tongue for taste. Mm. And that makes sense because that's the part that is face. Yeah. And if you want to include like the, the sense of smell in there, which you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. then that's yet another cranial nerve, the first cranial nerve. Jem just did his big clinical skills exam two days or yesterday, so he's got a lot of nerves on the mind. <laughs> I've got a lot of <laughs> nerves. Got a lot of nerve. <laughs> yeah. they, they didn't. They didn't test us on cranial nerves this time. And cranial nerves was last Oski, but I did score a hundred percent. It's the only clinical exam I've ever aced. Do you know how well, many times I've had cranial thing? nerves tested? <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry, Laura put up with a lot of cranial nerve testing. She she is a model patient. <laughs> Laura, you're a saint. You know that, right? I do. <laughs> I'm waiting for my monument. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the tongue. Yeah. Please do. <laughs> yeah, a little bit left. Our taste buds, they renew approximately every 10 days. Your tongue is your fastest healing organ, or among them. So like yesterday, I burned my tongue on a molten piece of pan-fried zucchini, Ooh. and it's already starting to heal. Mm, yeah. In a few days, I yep. Yeah, in a few days, I will forget that I ever tried to wolf down lunch before a meeting. I forgot about. <laughs> <laughs> I will do it again. <laughs> yeah, the tongue is not doing you any favors in changing behavior here. No, and also if I take my tongue stud out for like two weeks, it will seal up, hmm. and that's gone all the way through. And I had my tongue pierced in two thousand seven. I was gonna say like it's been so a it's... long time for you, right? Like <laughs> yeah. So in conclusion, just like basically everything else I learned in grade two biology, a basic amount of deeper research, we're talking puddle deep here, folks. I read (laughs) four websites and it disabused me something I took as fact. Heck, just swishing a cup of tea around in your mouth will tell you differently from the taste map that we learned as kids. And maybe we should all apply that to all the other facts that we were taught as tiny children. Amen. Nice. Wonderful. Some of the basic things that we all learn in grade school are things like, how many continents are there? How many oceans are there? What are the names of all the planets? And all of those things have changed or are about to change since the time that I graduated high school. First, of course, is our beloved Pluto. Axed low these many years because it was just not quite large enough. I just googled Pluto, and I do think it's quite adorable that the little byline underneath, like, for the search box of basic facts is Pluto, our favorite dwarf planet since 2006. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought it might say former planet. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's cute. That's a cute way to put it. 
It, of course, is the only planet with a giant heart on it, so obviously the cutest planet. It is slightly less massive than Eris, which I feel like is the biggest point of how it got demoted to non-planet. Mm. Because if it if it had been yeah. just like slightly more exceptional, like if we didn't have to add any others in order to keep it, I feel like we could have kept it, but we didn't. Yeah, it just and, became uh, an we'll exoplanet out of... <laughs> I'll never let that go. Pluto is still a planet in my heart, but not in <laughs> science. <laughs> Moving on, how many oceans do we have? We have uh, seven oceans and seven continents. It's seven and seven like the drink. Yes, it's, it's, it's <laughs> also, seven seas, right? The seven seas. Also very biblical number, so therefore we must go with Yeah. It. yeah. So that's on, a good on. reason to make yep. the oceans, yeah. for sure. <laughs> the Southern Ocean is Earth's newest quote-unquote ocean. And it was definitely not an ocean when I was in school, as no. far as I learned. But I actually found it very interesting looking into this that the oceans are, I guess, more based in actual science than I expected rather than just based in basically area. Because, like, they all essentially touch, right? What's the difference? Yeah. Why isn't it just one big ass ocean? That is what I yeah. always wondered. I, right? <laughs> I look forward to learning better. <laughs> yes, it, it, it blew my mind in, in grade school when I said, but they're all connected. Right. Why Why are they named different? There were, have been a lot of revisions to how many oceans we have, and there are sort of different agreements even now. One Earth ocean is, is common. Four oceans or five oceans, not unknown. But the Southern Ocean has only recently been agreed that it both exists and should like get its own name. And it is based on the way that the currents and the ecology of the different areas of ocean interact with each other hmm. so the agreed upon limits of the either antarctic ocean or southern ocean is usually about 50 degrees south so it's just a straight line all the way around the the actual limits of the way that the currents play out is like a little bit touch wavier but it really does just encircle the continent of antarctica with a special ecological niche because of the okay. way that the currents sort of move around the continent. You mm -hmm. can tell when you're moving from one to another that the there is a boundary of right. different animals and the way that things interact with each other. And that's true for the other oceans as well. And that's why they are delineated the way that they are through all of these different arguments. I did think it was interesting, even the first like big conference to decide where ocean limits should go was in 1919, a long time ago. Wow. And I was thinking there it was were, like Council of Nicaea age. <laughs> there have been different agreements. There were more toward the beginning of the 20th century. And then in 1953, we had the one that most of us learned. And in 2002, they had a big conference and agreed that ah, some of these things need a bit of tweaking. <laughs> so I thought that was cool. I learned more about how oceans work and how different oceans have touched and not touched throughout time. And also this big 2002 report is apparently still not accepted by a lot of places because of naming disputes of different oceans and seas, primarily the sea of Japan. Very controversial. Oh yes. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. The yellow sea, right? 
Mm, didn't look into it as much, so I'm not sure what the controversy exactly is. I did look into the other continent that I didn't know about. Mm, so mm-hmm. when I was in high school, the continent, the last continent that I learned about was Australia. It just got to be its own continent. I kind of assumed that there was other stuff around it that counted as part of its continent, but we assumed that Australia was its own continent. And we didn't really talk about the stuff that was around it. Then it became sort of more commonly known as Oceania, which was, I think, better, encompassed more area. Mm-hmm. But I had not heard until recently about Zealandia. It is near Australia, as you might be able to guess from the name, and it has been described as a submerged continent, a continental fragment, or a microcontinent. But geologists seem to be in agreement that it in fact meets all of the definitions of a straight up continent and if the water table was lower it would have been understood that it was a continent for a long time and that's the only the only real division how long until the the atlantis cranks are are claiming that this is uh, (laughs) this is what they're already they're already out there they're all over 50 years ago (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if I may, just to issue a, a quick correction of something I said just a few minutes ago, the, the Sea of Japan and the Yellow Sea are actually right next to each other, but are two different seas. Mm, uh, okay, the good. Sea of Japan is also known as the Korean East Sea. That that tells you where the conf- conflict exactly, is right there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It has a bunch of other names too. But There is an entire book by a couple of geologists arguing that Zealandia should be its own continent. It is entitled Zealandia, Our Continent Revealed. oh no that sounds like one of those shows we make fun of sounds very cranky right (laughs) (laughs) the largest land forum on zealandia is new zealand Mm -hmm. followed by new caledonia which i mostly know from like new zealand and australian shows about like that's where they go for vacation so it must be very pretty Mm. where yeah Uh, i don't know where that is so most of it is submerged, and it so New Zealand is sort of if you're looking at it's the standard map, it's like down into the right of Australia, and yeah, New yeah. Caledonia is north of that. Oh, okay. Hmm. And if it was if we had slightly less ocean, we would all be sort of a larger landmass, all connected mm. there, and yeah. we would have another continent. And I think that probably based on what I've read today, eventually it will be recognized as an actual continent. Although I didn't really know about the 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 term like microcontinent. That is also just a cool concept that I hadn't been exposed to before now. <laughs> they're, they're not going to go with dwarf continent. <laughs> just, uh, yeah. Another Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. I'd always assumed that New Zealand and Australia were on the same like continental shelf. Yeah. But me looking too. looking at that map, it's clear that they're not. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I I really liked learning about these continental fragments because it was really interesting to learn that there are like chunks of area that have drifted off from their main continent and like, well, we're pretty sure it's technically part of this, but it's gotten lost. <laughs> <laughs> it's just just out literally out to sea. Right. Like Madagascar is sometimes considered like a microcontinent. Because it has sort of wandered off from where it was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's oceans. really it's really cool when you can see that chunk and you're like, yeah, I can see it fitting right into that coastline there. Like, exactly. Just... <laughs> number of continents, number of oceans, number of planets. Always in flux. Cool. Gotta keep them guessing. Mm-hmm. 
So I can take the next one, I guess. I would like to talk a little bit about medical screening guidelines. It's worth reminding folks at this point that I am not yet a doctor, and nothing I say here constitutes medical advice. I am going to be discussing medical screening guidelines and the rationale behind some of the changes that have been made over the last few decades, though. I'm always happy to answer general questions, either from my co-panelists or from listeners, about screening to the best of my ability. But questions about your medical care, I recommend that you talk to your primary care provider if you're lucky enough to have one. (laughs) Oh, dark. But even in that case, he can't be yours. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, screening. I'm going to start off with a question for the panel, and it's a deceptively simple question. What is a screening test? It is a test that you would perform in the absence of symptoms. Very good. So a screening test is specifically a test that aims to detect something, so in this case a disease, in an asymptomatic individual, and I'll add a second caveat there, an asymptomatic individual with an average risk. That is Mm. to say they have no particular risk factors or protective factors to speak of. So you can argue that second point about whether it's still a screening test if you're just doing it because somebody's at higher risk, but generally speaking, asymptomatic with average risk. What would it be called if it was an asymptomatic person with a high risk? That would be a case finding, I think. Oh, interesting, because it feels that. like it should be screening as well. I, I'm, I'm going to bet that a lot of times it is colloquially called a screening mm-hmm. sure. as well. Uh, maybe something like a targeted screening. Yeah. yeah. And and when you talk to your own primary care provider, they might use a variety of terms for something like that. It's like a distinction without a difference. (laughs) You would tell a patient, like you would tell a patient it's a screening. You're not going to say, well, you're high risk, so we're going to call it something else. Yeah. And and in fact, the screening guidelines do stratify by risk. But but generally speaking, screening is for asymptomatic people with sort of average risk, kind of. Although we always stratify by age, not always, but more recently, which we'll get to, which is in and of itself a a risk factor. So it's, it's murky. But yes, Ashlyn's point is the main one. Screening test is for folks who are asymptomatic, who who we don't have any reason to believe have the disease. So that's screening. But if somebody has symptoms and you're testing for a disease because they have symptoms, then that's a diagnostic test. So if somebody comes in with abnormal uterine bleeding and you do an endometrial biopsy, that's a diagnostic endometrial biopsy, not a screening endometrial biopsy. So this is complicated, of course, by the fact that depending on the context, the same kind of test can either be a screening test or a diagnostic test. Some tests are only used for screening. Some tests are pretty much only used for diagnosis, but a lot of tests are used for both. So routine mammograms are screening tests, but a mammogram because you found a lump, that's a diagnostic test. Make sense? Absolutely. All right. But it's the same... If you're going in for that, it would be the same thing. The, or the, would the test itself is the same, yes. but it is the either... The reason for it. Yeah. The, the reason is what makes it a yeah. diagnostic yeah. or a screening test. 
Very pedantic. Yes. But, <laughs> but it's relevant. Medicine. Yeah. <laughs> it is relevant for when we talk about screening guidelines. So with that in mind, let's talk about some cancer screening guidelines and how present recommendations differ from the guidelines that many of us grew up with. So the screening guidelines I'll be discussing are courtesy of the American Cancer Society, though they're not substantially different from those published by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force or the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare, all of which I'll link to in the show notes. I'm actually more familiar with the American guidelines than the Canadian guidelines because in third year med school, I wrote the American exams because I guess... I assume my med school was lazy and didn't want to write their own tests, and so they just licensed the NBMEs. Jim, I don't you haven't graduated yet. Be careful. Oh, yeah, I can't piss anyone off. Okay, so let's start off with colorectal cancer. So I'm usually go- I'm mostly going to be contrasting the guidelines from the from the 80s with the guidelines, uh, the present guidelines, because a lot of these guidelines were first established in the 80s or shortly before then. It's it's a, g- a good point of comparison. So. Screening for colorectal cancer in the 1980s, the recommendations were that people aged 40 and over should have a yearly digital rectal exam, or people aged 50 and over should have a yearly fecal occult blood test, which tests stool for blood that isn't visible to the naked eye or otherwise detectable, but they test for it anyway. So when you're 40 and older, you could have a yearly rectal exam. When you're 50 or older, you could either have a yearly rectal exam or a yearly fecal occult blood test or a yearly proctosigmoidoscopy, which is a scope up the bottom. That was to be done every year, but if you elect for the sigmoidoscopy after two normal tests, they start making them further apart. So... If, if, you, if you're persistently normal in your sigmoidoscopy, you could go to every five years. So this is the 1980 guidelines, starting at 40 and up. The present guidelines are similar, but technologically there have been some advances. So you can still have the fecal blood test. There's two different tests that they can do now, the FIT or the GUIAC-based fecal occult blood test. You can also have a stool DNA test. So the old guidelines had a DRE, digital rectal exam, starting at age 40. Digital rectal exam is no longer recommended in the screening guidelines at all for, for testing for colorectal cancer, just because it gets into the rectum, unless you've got an extremely long finger, it is not getting into the colon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not particularly useful. And the fecal occult blood testing now starts at age 45 instead of age 50. And then you can also have stool DNA tests every three years instead, or you can do a colonoscopy every 10 years. And there's also flexible sigmoidoscopy every five years or CT colonoscopy, which is also called a virtual colonoscopy that you can do every five years. So that's a little bit of futzing around with the details. There, there's some changes in technology that have happened, but largely these guidelines are pretty similar. Now, what does that tell us about how far the technology or scans have come in 40 years? Well, there, there has been an increase in the incidences of colorectal cancer, and that will vary to a great extent by diet as well. But it doesn't tell us in and of itself that much. But another change that, does, that has happened is that you should get screened starting at age 45 
until age 75. Whereas previously, they wanted to start screening at age 40 and then just keep going forever. Also, previously, you would get screened every single year unless you were going for the sigmoidoscopy, at which point, if it keeps being normal, it's a, a very good test. It's not perfect, but it's very good. If it keeps being normal, you could space it out up to five years apart. Whereas now, you start at 45, so a little bit later. You end at 75, so you stop testing earlier. Previously, you just ended at death. <laughs> or when your insurance ran out, we are talking about American. It's adorable you think we have insurance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 I would not practice medicine in the United States. These are the 1980s guidelines. Yeah. And you also can do a colonoscopy every 10 years if you're normal risk. And the recommendations is that people over age 75 now, they can optionally be screened after a discussion with their care provider. And the guidelines are very clear. People over 85 should not be screened. Mm, Well, well, the risk is higher than... We'll get into that in, in a couple minutes. I'd like to move on, if I may, to breast cancer, which has had some more substantial changes. So in the 1980s, the recommendations were that starting in high school, everybody with breasts should be doing a monthly breast self-exam. Then when you're in your 20s or 30s, you should be getting a clinical breast exam at your primary care provider every three years. Then starting at age 40, that becomes yearly. And then in your late 30s, you should get a mammogram for a baseline. And then if you're 50 and over, you should be getting yearly mammograms. And maybe starting in your 40s, depending on what your primary care provider recommends. That has changed substantially. So the current guidelines for both the United States and Canada are that mammograms should start, you get the... This varies a little bit between the states and Canada, but the American Cancer Association recommends potential mammograms as early as 40, but yearly mammograms from age 54. And then for people age 55 and older, they should have mammograms every two years with the option to continue mammograms every year if they want. And they should continue until the patient has less than a 10-year expected lifespan left. (laughs) And if here down here in America, if you can't afford insurance or to visit a doctor without insurance, thankfully, you can go to Planned Parenthood where there will be no issues finding one or accessing one whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So so in Canada, there is actually a specific cutoff recommendation for stopping mammograms, provided they've been normal. We don't need to get into the, to the weeds there, but it is worth noting, and I don't want to elide this, that routine clinical press, breast exams are and routine self-exams are no longer recommended for anyone in any age group. They right, do not because recommend, they produce too many false positives, right? You're stepping on my segment, but yes, yes. You do uh, it to everyone uh, else, so fuck absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, so that is a major issue. And then cervical cancer, which where again, we've had some changes and for some of the same reasons and for some different reasons. In the 1980s, the recommendation was that everybody, uh, all people with a cervix 20 and over should get yearly pap tests. 
or starting under 20 if sexually active. After two negative exams one year apart, you can do those less frequently, up to three years apart. And everybody 20 to 40 should get a pelvic exam every three years, and everybody 40 or over should get a pelvic exam yearly. Now the recommendations are that pap testing can be done every three years in those in their 20s once they have become sexually active. In Canada, actually, I believe it starts at 25 now, not even 21. Don't quote me on that because I haven't looked that up in the last month. You can also get pap test plus HPV DNA testing or primary HPV testing, which is actually the preferred methodology in those 25 to 65, and that can be done every five years. So these guidelines, as I said, apply to anyone with a cervix who has ever been sexually active. If you have never been sexually active, or if you no longer have a cervix or never had a cervix, you don't need to get screened for cervical cancer. But if you do have a cervix and you have ever been sexually active, you should follow the screening guidelines, if possible, given the constraints of the medical system that you have to wrestle with. So those are, you could keep going over guidelines. We could even talk non-cancer guidelines, like for diabetes screening and like that. But in general, guidelines have been changing. And the big question that Ashlyn has been prompting me with and then answering themselves because I was refusing to answer is why the change? So it used to be recommended basically that if there was a screening test, everybody should be screened for everything, basically. So why the big change? So in some cases, it is arguably due to a declining need for screening due to a decreased prevalence of disease. So we have seen some changes, especially in Canada with cervical cancer, as the overwhelming majority of cervical cancers are caused by infection with the human papillomavirus, and HPV prevalence is on the decline due to the availability of highly effective vaccines. Today, it takes the average sexually active person much longer to contract HPV if, if they do ever contract it, and rates of cervical cancer are on the decline. So we may see these guidelines continue, I expect, we'll see these guidelines continue to, to be updated to reflect that. However, this is a relatively isolated case. Incidences of breast cancer, on the other hand, have fluctuated for a variety of reasons, but have not actually, like the, the incidence hasn't actually changed appreciably since we were in high school. For most diseases, the greatest factor impacting screening guidelines is an evolving view of the evidence. So, Ashlyn had already mentioned one, but why would we not recommend routine annual mammograms or breast self-exams, etc., for every person with breast tissue, regardless of age? Can anyone think of any reasons? So uh, we'll, we'll mention the one again that Ashton mentioned earlier, false positives. That's, that's a harm. A false positive causes worry to the patient. If you're very carefully feeling for any lumps and you find something, you're like, is this a lump? That, that is, that's a, a psychological harm if mm-hmm. that's not actually cancer. And it, in addition to that, it can cause what we refer to as a diagnostic cascade where you have to get an increasing number of increasingly invasive tests to rule out cancer that you wouldn't have got, that you wouldn't have had to have if you hadn't noticed that little lump. Any other harms that someone can think of with just giving everybody a mammogram every year? That's a lot of radiation. It is indeed a lot of radiation. It's also like, from what I understand, not the most pleasant experience to go through. (laughs) 
and it is a drill a press of, for tits. A lot of hassle too, like and utilization of the healthcare system that's unnecessary where we Absolutely. could put those resources to better use. I mean, and luckily up here in Canada is not costing the individual, costs the healthcare system, but that that can get pretty expensive in the States, I hear. <laughs> I have no idea what you mean. It's not like I had to pay a $100 deposit just to see my doctor for a checkup recently, and that's just a deposit, not the whole bill. My God. Um, just, I like, I, I truly can't imagine. Wow. You know, so when are you moving up? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Depending on how it goes next year, maybe very soon. <laughs> Fingers crossed. There's an ophthalmologist named Dr. Glaukenflecken <laughs> who makes comedic videos designed for medical professionals making fun of med students and residents and attendings and the medical system in general. Uh, it's very fun stuff, but he's been doing a series this past month about the American healthcare system and some of the legion of things that are that are wrong with that. And oh boy. Yeah, so so cost and usage of the healthcare system is another one. You know, and just going to hospitals, you can catch stuff in a hospital. I just finished my psychiatry rotation and I think I think when I left the Victoria Hospital, every single psych ward was on outbreak Good for outbreak. COVID again. So that's not great. Wouldn't wouldn't recommend visiting a hospital unless you you have a need to. And yeah, so in addition to to cost, there you're going to increase the wait times for people who who could benefit more from the test. So that's all well and good to consider. But even if you are super selfish and you just wanted to use all those yummy yummy resources yourself and you can afford to pay for all of these tests. And you didn't mind getting all of those doses of radiation, or if you're if we're talking other kinds of testing like sigmoidoscopies and colonoscopies, there's always a small risk of bowel perforation when you're screening for colorectal cancer. So you don't want to be sticking mm-hmm. stuff up there unless you, well, you want to be really careful. You want to be careful at all times, and unless make sure it has a flared base. Yeah, you, <laughs> you don't want to lose anything in there for sure. But just just to keep in mind, there are plenty of things that we could do to optimize or improve our health and safety that we don't do because it's inconvenient. And mm-hmm. being inconvenient is a major factor in a lot of our health decisions that we only acknowledge in certain circumstances. The example that I like to use is that, that of wearing a bike helmet. I mean, plenty of folks wear a bike helmet when they ride a bike. Not everybody, certainly. I do. But very few people wear a bike helmet when they walk to the store. Or even when they walk around their own home, despite the fact that it could very well prevent a traumatic brain injury if they happen to, say, spill some orange juice on the kitchen floor and slip and dash their head against the granite countertop. So we can ask ourselves if we wanted to consider whether it's reasonable to just wear a bike helmet at all times, how much time on average we would have to spend wearing that bike helmet around, just walking around your home, uh, in order to prevent a single head injury. And that's not something that, as far as I know, has ever been studied or ever will be studied, (laughs) I can imagine. But if I had to guess, it would probably be on the order of a century or more. You'd have to wear that bike helmet to prevent a catastrophic injury just walking around for the average person. So what I'm saying is that you can argue that it might be objectively safer to walk around wearing a bike helmet all day, every day, just like you could argue that it might be objectively safer to do breast self-exams every month or every day. But it's probably not worth the trouble. And bike helmets are relatively benign to wear. You know, it might increase your risk of 
probably some sort of like fungal infection or something if you're never taking it off. Yeah, it would be unpleasant, but it's relatively low risk, but it would be damn inconvenient. (laughs) And that is one of the real considerations that we make when screening guidelines are updated. Again, the fact that we don't recommend routine screening, I want to emphasize this. The fact that we don't recommend routine screening, we don't recommend routine clinical breast exams, doesn't mean that you shouldn't get an exam or a test if you have symptoms, because that's diagnostic testing, and that's very important. So breast exams, self-exams aren't recommended anymore for anybody, despite the fact that they will occasionally find a lump that turns out to be cancer, but they're much more likely to turn up something benign, like a cyst or a fibroadenoma or a galactoseal or an area of fat necrosis. And that will result in weeks or months of worry and a huge cost burden to either the individual or the system when you're getting your follow-up testing. It's fairly well established that a lot of these screening tests that were previously recommended on a regular basis for everybody, or at least for a wider variety of people, simply aren't worth it. Routine mammograms, contrasting them to breast self-exams, may or may not be recommended for you depending on your age group. However, if you do notice a lump in your breast, it is recommended that you see your primary care provider for an appropriate workup because we're not talking screening anymore. Does that all make sense? Yeah. So that's screening. Yep. So we got it's a do little it bit different. Yeah. <laughs> Stop filling yourself up in the shower. Got it. Hey, hey, hey I remember you, when you, that one you came. do you. thinking about knowledge that has changed since i was in high school or even before that brought me to thinking about how the brontosaurus was real well kind of and then it wasn't and now it is again At least technically, but in some ways, maybe the jury's still out on that. So let's talk about the Brontosaurus. So I'm curious, when I say Brontosaurus, what comes to mind for all of you? The giant cow from Jurassic Park. Can I touch it? Sure. Just think of it as kind of a big cow. (laughs) The land before time. Yeah, the long neck from land before time is what comes to mind immediately. Yeah, absolutely. My paleontology special focus has a whole big list of what a brontosaurus comes to, but I'm just going to say <laughs> a patasaurus. <laughs> Lauren! <laughs> I was going to say the apatosaurus from Jurassic Park, but... <laughs> All right, we're getting there. For many people around our ages, I think those two media touch points, at least in our culture and part of the world, are are probably what a lot of us think of. So it's the the very, very large, long-necked dinosaurs that move slowly in herds and eat a bunch of foliage, the, the gentle giants of the of the Jurassic era, if you will. So just a bit of background here. The the Brontosaurus itself was first named and in quotation marks discovered in 1879 by Othniel Charles Marsh, an American paleontologist. And he chose this name based on the, the specimen size because the, the name translates to thunder lizard. And the first species that he found was the Brontosaurus excelsus. So the like large or amazing thunder lizard, just talking about how big it truly was. 
Jem's gonna. I have to say, Thunder here. Lizard would be an amazing pro wrestler's name. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are dozens of metal bands named Thunder Lizard. <laughs> like there has to be. It's it, it's it is a great name for so many things. Especially if you stick Excelsior on the end. Yeah, I I, I can't help but but think of Stan, Stan? Lee. <laughs> So there are actually there were actually three species identified: the aforementioned Brontosaurus excelsus, the Brontosaurus parvus, and the Brontosaurus yanapin. All of them lived during the Jurassic period, approximately 150 million years ago, give or take five to ten million years, and they are from North America. And this is something that I didn't know because I don't study a lot of dinosaurs, but specifically they were found in the Utah, Colorado, Wyoming area of the United States. That's just the same area where you find, like, raptors, right? Utah has a ton of... There's a lot. And the reason for that is during the Jurassic period, that entire area was covered with lakes, swamps, and valleys. And Mm. so it was incredibly lush and not arid and mountainous the way that it is today. So that makes a lot of sense. When I was in, I think, sixth grade, I had a, from Scholastic Arida, a paperback book. I think it was called Utah Raptor. It had a (laughs) hollow foil cover. Man, it was cool. Loved that book. Oh my god. I The only thing that comes to mind is like a raptor dinosaur dressed as an elder going door to door. Truly, when you say that. <sighs> but I digress. All right, so we found this brontosaurus, or Marsh did. What happened? Yeah, you're taking a lot of credit for this. <laughs> it, was the, it was the royal we. <laughs> it was fine. Wait, it was the royal we? That means you. Yeah, okay. I, okay. I, Laura Craig Newman, am taking credit for the discovery of the Brontosaurus, having never studied paleontology nor visited the that part of the United States. All right. So where's the controversy or what was going on with the Brontosaurus? Well, let's talk about a little bit of context here. So the the discovery happened during a time that is referred to as the Bone Wars, which is essentially a paleontological gold rush during the late 19th century. So scientists... I love the Bone Wars. I am not joking. That is what it was called. Okay. So if we're talking controversy, is, is the controversy that, that, that Satan buried these bones to make paleontologists... Oh, look, no, this is pure them? ego. no. Okay. Not yeah. even close. No, nope. yeah, like everybody was just racing to get the bones, right? Y- yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. It. It's the same sort of race that all the the Euro American, like Anglo Euro Americans, were doing all over the world to find stuff and claim it as their own, right? Put their mm-hmm. name or like on a it. gold rush almost. It was like there's exactly. we know that there's a ton of bones here. Somebody's got to get them first. Exactly, exactly. So scientists were scrambling to not just find these things, because of course, these are amazing, right? We're, they found huge troves around this time, and there was enough technology to communicate about it and to excavate. And, and so it truly is scientifically interesting. And, and people were, this is the golden age of science as well, where science is amazing. And people are, the general public is also interested in these new discoveries. So I don't want to discount that. But there was a whole lot of rushing to be the first to find something so that you could name it, and then you get your name to live on forever, and that gives you a whole lot of academic clout. So there is a lot of that going on. So because of that, uh, people were racing to publish as fast as they could. Some things never changed. And uh, specimens were examined, but sometimes in a bit of a rushed fashion. 
So that's important to know. When it came to naming rights at the time, too, they followed the convention where the first recorded or published name for a specimen would be the official title for all subsequent finds of that same species. So essentially, the name wouldn't be changed later. So whatever you called it the first time, if you find another one, that's what it's going to be called again. So some controversy started appearing almost as soon as Marsh's publication of his results of or discovery of the brontosaurus appeared. One challenge was that he did find some truly incredible specimens that were nearly complete, but they all lacked heads. So nobody really knew what the head looked like. And of course, in a rush to present this new species and get his name on something, he decided to just substitute some skulls of other sauropods, often the Camarasaurus, when he was putting together skeletons or, or giving it to museums and that. Or he also would try to invent what the skull would look like based off of his speculation or just looking at Brachiosaurus or Camarasaurus and kind of taking those things and just just mishmashing them together to create what he thought a head would be but didn't really fit. All right, I'm peering over your shoulder to try to read Camarasaurus because I'm not familiar with that, but I thought you were saying Chimerasaurus. Which would be oddly appropriate when you're substituting the skull of one animal for another. I mean, to be fair, these are much more related than your typical chimera because Camarasaurus is another sauropod-like. It's another sauropod. It's not in the same... It's a more distant relative to... Yeah, we're we're not talking like lion, snake, goat, and scorpion. (laughs) I had also not heard of this thing, but it has like a really long like giraffe looking neck but the rest of it is more compact than like your typical what you would think of and it's like really chonky like the neck and head are really substantial looking yeah and and it's important to know too that our what many of us think of as a sauropod is the like that brontosaurus we don't think of other types of dinosaurs that are were built in that same Mm -hmm. sort of fashion so we don't imagine that it might be chonky or that it might be shorter or longer or whatever, right? I don't know. I, at least I find that I'm challenged that way when I see something. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to ask something, Laura. Yeah. Do you know why there was the phenomenon of them finding them all without heads? Like, were the heads just more dissolvable? Like, what happened to the heads? I don't know. And I did uh, not know (laughs) like that. That's a really good question. I didn't do a deep enough dive into the discovery process to, to look into any theories or anything. I mean, with, with heads too, you, you have the, the upper skull and then you have the lower mandible and sometimes some other bones and stuff. So there's more bits, I guess. I don't Mm -hmm. know. And, and heads can get lopped off, I guess. I, I truly don't know. There was a revolution and they, the dinosaurs invented the <laughs> There were dinosaur guillotines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we only found the, di- the dinosaur ruling class. Oh. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Okay. And we need the proles, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> look down, look down. Hold <laughs> your head that low. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So this sort of mishmashing of skulls and that wasn't just in obscure places. This was in very well-known and respected places, including the Peabody Museum at Yale University and such. So 
it was what it was, but there was always controversy around it. So we need to think about it in this fact that people knew that there wasn't a head found, but there were heads on these specimens. And this was back in the day too, where they would actually put the bones on display instead of the casts, which is what we would see in a museum today, should we go and see a skeleton on display. They would have to learn to cope. <laughs> Coping and the 1900s don't go well together, okay? I, I was making a pun, Laura, for later oh. in your segment. All right, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm actually not going to talk about Cope, but that's okay. Okay, so Marsh had many opponents because, of course, when there is a race to get as much ego stroking as possible, you're going to have a lot of enemies. And so one of his opponents was another researcher named Elmer Riggs, who was the one to question the separateness of the Brontosaurus as a, as a genus. So remember, the, the Brontosaurus was published or, or identified in 1879, and it was published shortly thereafter. In 1903, Elmer Riggs published a paper claiming that Marsh's Brontosaurus was not, in fact, substantially different from the Apatosaurus, which Marsh had also found in 1877. So remember that naming convention? Because so, so Riggs argued that because the Brontosaurus was probably just an Apatosaurus, the Brontosaurus name was invalid because this new specimen should fall under the Apatosaurus category and not have its own new category. So it's really just a pedantic semantics thing when you think about it. But he was, all he was saying is, oh, Marsh already discovered this. It's an Apatosaurus. We should just call it that. Brontosaurus is not a thing. So sometimes when we hear those sensationalized things of Brontosaurus didn't exist, and we don't have any follow-up information, we might think, oh, it's a made-up creature. It's like, no, this was a real creature. It's really just a naming thing. Everybody with me so far? Yeah. Yep. They, these dinosaurs were very conscious of this when they were naming themselves. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. They, this was very, very important to, to these dinosaurs. I know politics. And, and this, following this tradition and Riggs's argument, was actually largely agreed upon by the scientific community. So very quickly after this publication, within the paleontological community, Brontosaurus became uh, a synonym for Apatosaurus and more of a colloquial synonym. It was not used in scientific circles. So why did we talk about it for another hundred years, right? Well, despite the scientific community settling on a Apatosaurus, the general public remained attached to the name Brontosaurus. And I can't say for sure why that is, but there's a couple of things that's, that set the stage for this. First- The Flintstones? <laughs> not Thunder quite. lizard. It goes before that. <laughs> I mean- <laughs> The first thing is that Riggs's critique of Marsh's paper was published in a lower profile academic journal than Marsh's initial paper. And just like today, this means that it's not going to receive the same coverage as the first paper. The bigger the journal, the more press coverage, the wider the spread of the information. And you add to that retractions or corrections never get the same spread as the initial result. The second thing that also impacts this, probably most importantly, is that the curator or the, the then curator of the paleontology section of the American Museum of Natural History in New York decided to name the mounted skeleton from Marsh's find as a brontosaurus instead of an apatosaurus. 
Thus, he legitimized the name for the public who would visit this museum. So he was a scientist, and he purposely chose to go with the obsolete name. And so anybody who walked through this well-regarded institution and looked at the placard would learn that this skeleton is a brontosaurus. And it entered the public lexicon. And the brontosaurus continued to live on in the mind of the public and in the media from that time forward. The first popular media appearance of a brontosaurus was in 1914 in what is considered one of the first animated films called Gertie the Dinosaur. And Gertie was a brontosaurus. Then in the 1930s, the brontosaurus really took off. In 1930, Sinclair Oil introduced their sauropod-shaped logo and mascot, who right. is named Dino, and this called him a brontosaurus. Dark. What's that? It's deeply dark that Sinclair's, like, it's, that their logo is a brontosaurus. It's just like, when you my, think about it, it makes you shudder. My favorite thing about that is that when, do you remember the dinosaurs, like, Jim Henson sitcom? Yes, yes. The fact, they were the Sinclairs, right? Because yep. they were named yep. after that company. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. All deeply... of the dinosaurs, <laughs> all of the dinosaurs in the dinosaur show were named after oil companies. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Although, like, arguably oil is probably mostly plant matter and unicellular life rather than dinosaurs, but still. When you go to the Sinclair website talking about their brontosaurus connection, they will talk about that. And they did change the name to an apatosaurus down the line, but... The first instance is always the one that sticks in someone's mind, right? So from 1930 forward, their advertisements included this dinosaur, and they put out other promotional materials, including dinosaur-themed children's books that had pages for Tyrannosaurus rex, Stegosaurus, Pterodactyl, and a Brontosaurus. They even had a Brontosaurus-shaped balloon in the 1963 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which made several appearances going forward. The 1930s was a big time for the Brontosaurus because it was featured in several movies, including in King Kong in 1933. And of course, as mentioned earlier, the 1960s Flintstones animated sitcom portrayed how useful Brontosauri are in every aspect of life, from work to eating. (laughs) So we, we really got established. And then along came the 90s and we had Jurassic Park and there was no going back after all of that. So the Brontosaurus has lived with the public for all of the 20th century. The U.S. Postal Service had a stamp featuring the Brontosaurus up until I believe it was the 90s or so. And they justified continuing to call it a Brontosaurus when it was pointed out that it was the wrong name because people identify with that name and not the Apatosaurus name, which I thought was interesting. And so even though Brontosaurus name was not used in scientific circles for pretty much all of the 20th century. That name never went away. And it was something that many of us grew up with as parts of our childhood. So it was probably a surprise for a lot for some people to hear that the Brontosaurus had been gone, but then came back in 2015. And so what happened there is In 2015, researcher Emmanuel Chopp and colleagues published an extensive reanalysis of many Apatosaurus specimens that were originally labeled as Brontosaurus and concluded that while very similar to the Apatosaurus and in a related family, the Brontosaurus specimens were sufficiently different from the Apatosaurus and thus deserved their own genus, moving the three Brontosaurus species back into their own genus 
which sits alongside the Apatosaurus genus, both under Apatosauriae, I think, or something. I don't speak Latin and I'm not going to try. And hence, the genus of Brontosaurus, or our beloved long-necked dinosaur, was reborn. Now, I will say that not all scholars in this field agree with the results or the conclusions of this new analysis. But what they do agree on is that this analysis opens up many new avenues for research into these ancient creatures. So while the Brontosaurus might be finally getting its day, it might also not be finally getting its day. Was it a dinosaur? Absolutely. At the end of the day, maybe it's the same as the Apatosaurus, maybe it's not. We, there's a lot of information that we are going to be learning about it. But the Brontosaurus is a reasonable thing to keep in your lexicon and continue thinking of as something that existed. Cool. So I suppose it's my turn. I have been slowly compiling some sound clips for all of you because what's the use of just telling you a story when I can take you on an audio journey <laughs> and not just because Ooh. not just because the play this year will involve some of these things or sounds possibly maybe spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> so I got out of high school in 2002 and technically graduated because in our country, some states let you graduate early if you want. If you decide to leave school and just go take a test, you can do that. In the state I lived in, you were not allowed to do that. You had to wait till after your class graduated. So I went to one of the states where you could because high school as a visibly queer kid in the 90s and early aughts kind of sucked. <laughs> Amen. So... I was able to have some pretty cool jobs for relatively short amounts of time, right around the 2002 to 2007-ish area, and I wanted to talk about three of them. Most of the places that I have worked no longer exist, and that was because until 2015, every place I ever worked pretty much was retail. And now we have a button that does that, and I'm not saying that's better, I don't think it is, but enough people do that a lot of these places went bye-bye. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just as simple as going to work around the time that I started working at these places. If you had to say, call into work, you didn't have, you very likely didn't have a cell phone. You very likely didn't have a cordless phone. If you had a regular phone and you didn't hang it up correctly, Here's a sound that anyone around my age or older might recognize. If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. So, kind of get the idea of the sound nostalgia we're going for here. You're welcome. <laughs> I feel old too. It's, it's super funny because there's a slight twang in the accent in that recording that is just different enough from the one that we had up in Manitoba. <laughs> Ours, ours yeah. had more of an English accent to yeah. it. If you'd like to make a call, please, please hang, hang up, up and, and try, try again. again. This, this is, is a, a recording. recording. Yeah. <laughs> I I can only hear it in Weird Al's voice now. <laughs> because of Albuquerque. If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and please try again. Up yeah. again. 
yeah, that there's there's a certain section of that song that hasn't aged well, but I still uh-huh. remember most of it fondly. Oh yeah. And you would get he into did your change com- it. Sorry. I did not know that. That's good to know. Yeah. Now, if you were fortunate enough to have a transportation of your own to work, many cars at the time didn't have a CD player or even a tape deck. So you had one choice if you had any sound desires at all, and you didn't have one of those cool fancy tools that if you found an untuned radio station for the four and a half seconds that you went by it, (laughs) you could play your CD player through that. Yeah. So if you were trying to find a tolerable radio station, here's what it would sound like. And you may or may not find something worthy of listening to by the time you get to work. The first place that I worked wasn't the king of video rental stores. I don't even know if it was a national chain. I do know that growing up, we had a store called Video Update that was taken over by, I want to say it was the number two or three company. Here is a commercial for that particular company around the time I worked there. Every day's a great day to rent your favorite videos, video games, and DVDs at any one of over 2,000 movie gallery locations. Movie gallery, play on. And if you worked at a movie gallery, you got to hear that approximately 17 times a day. (laughs) Oh. Because something that will apply to all three of these places, you would think maybe at a movie store you could play movies or something recent that might be interesting and not the same 25-minute tape or DVD over and over and over and over again. And it only changed once a month. And if you turned it off, you got in trouble. But I worked at Movie Gallery at two different locations. One of them has been since remade into, I think, a Chinese restaurant. The other, I don't know what it is. It sat vacant for it sat vacant for so long that even ten years later, the return slot, the overnight return slot, was still there. Wow. <laughs> the second one, which definitely demonstrates being put out of business by the internet, nobody ever came in to rent actual movies. The second one, unlike the first one and the other places that I worked, had a back room with a curtain and one of those funny little mirrors. Uh Uh-huh. So (laughs) the internet sort of made that completely obsolete. And we pretty much had to watch that the entire time because half the people who went back there would try to slice it open and and steal the stuff anyway. And if you wanted to keep the, the rentable ones locked up, there were rentable and purchasable ones. There was a little magnet that was put up through the middle of it. And you had to have a fancy little magnet tool to pull the strip out so you could open it. Because nobody in the world other than Movie Gallery had magnets. (laughs) (laughs) I left Movie Gallery shortly before it stopped being a thing in our area of central Pennsylvania, where I was at the time. But when I was about 18... I had a girlfriend who had a job at probably the coolest place of these three. And this commercial, I will take you to now. Everyone on my list loves movies. That's why I go to Suncoast. 
They have the classics. Sci-fi, action thrillers, holiday movies. At Suncoast, I got something for everyone. And uh, one thing for myself. There are over 10,000 great movie gifts at Suncoast, like Clear and Present Danger, starring Harrison Ford, Batman Forever, starring Val Kilmer, or the action thriller The Specialist. These and hundreds of other titles are on sale now at Suncoast. Oof. Suncoast, minus one very specific thing, was probably the coolest place I ever worked before I got to work in college football. That one thing, though, was a very big thing. And that was, if you worked at Suncoast, it didn't matter if the person bought a pack of gum or if they bought $300 worth of videos. There were five different things you had to try to sell them at the counter. And if you didn't ask all of them, you would get written up. Oh, no. Oh, those are the worst. I hate those scripts. You had to ask them if they wanted to reserve anything that hadn't come out yet. You had to ask them if they wanted to special order anything that they couldn't find. You had to ask if they wanted to purchase a gift card. You had to ask if they wanted the Suncoast membership, and you weren't allowed to take no for an answer once. You had to get it twice. Now, all of those four I could deal with. The one that I eventually got fired for refusing to do was trying to get people using a credit card to let their credit card be subscribed to two different magazines. What? Yes. Wow. If you... At the time I worked there, if you paid with a credit card, we had to ask if you wanted to use that credit card to get a free eight issues of either Entertainment Weekly or Sports Illustrated. And it was one of those things that automatically renewed and was really difficult to cancel. I did not feel ethically good about trying to do that. Therefore, the fact that all my other numbers in the regard were above everybody else's did not matter because I didn't follow the script. Because what people really want when they go to a store is an automated robot trying to upsell them at every turn. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. And it's used it's, to work for a call center, can relate. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was working for a restaurant many years ago, every time we answered the phone, we had this thing that we had to say. It was like, welcome to blah, 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 home of the blah, blah, blah. Now with blah, 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 pick up curbside and delivery. All of that before we could say like, my name is so-and-so, how can I help you? Like, and Uh I had so many people who were like, did I, is this, is this? what so-and-so restaurant like what (laughs) what did you even say because it's like yeah if i was calling a place i would not want to hear all that shit and then everybody Mm -hmm. would say it as fast as they possibly could so then like you say marissa like they wouldn't get written up and then it's incomprehensible oh god those things are the worst the worst yeah wasn't it great when they added that to drive-thrus too Oh. oh instead of just saying how can i help you would you like to try x y and z today yeah like, no. And it, like, stalls you out. You have to think about it for a second. Wait, wait. I wasn't expecting to have this first interaction. Well, and it's, it's all, like, drive-through microphone audio is always so terrible. Mm-hmm. And, like, so, you, again, like, you can't hear what the person is saying properly to begin with. So then you're trying to parse, like, what? Cabbage? What? Sorry? Now, where Movie Gallery was able to find a niche market in central Pennsylvania, I explained. Where Suncoast found a niche market in central Pennsylvania had very little to do with what was in most sections. In the back left corner, and this was 2005, so this was not anywhere near as easily readily available as it is now, anime. 
That is where everybody from a good 40-mile radius came to get their anime. I was never into anime, but pretty much all of my friends were. I even went to anime conventions. Even though I have no interest in anime, because all of my friends did, and I tend to be into subcultures that other people aren't, and I tend to hang out with people who aren't into the subcultures I am, but are into certain ones that I don't care about, but if they're into that subculture, chances are I'm going to like them. Makes, make it make sense. Autism is fun. So, when I was working at Suncoast, there was a certain media that was just being phased out to the detriment of some of the older folks who did not want to learn a new technology. I will now play a little bit of sound that anybody who had one of these may or may not recognize. Because I still have one. I don't know anyone else who does. Is that a VCR? That is a VCR. Yep. Could have been a beta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Beta was, a, beta was the superior format, and I will take that to my grave. I really think it's funny how with the, the connotations of the word beta now and just like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was always disappointing, though, when you would go to a friend's house and they had the movie that you want to watch, but it was beta and their beta machine was broken. That was always sad. The last place I worked was probably my least favorite. And I was just in the worst time to work there, in my opinion, other than when they were all closing down. This was 2006 to 2007. Right as Netflix was starting to get big, and we're just talking the mail-in, I worked for this place. Nobody has the movie I want. Hey, if it's on video, Blockbuster probably has it. I mean, we have over 10,000 videos. Wow. I'll watch these fast and have them back tomorrow, I promise. Relax. At Blockbuster, you can keep your videos for three evenings, so take home plenty. And, and use our 24-hour quick drop. Do you have any children's videos? Sure. Blockbuster's America's family video store. You know, we have more kids' videos than any place else. And more movies, more nights, more fun. Blockbuster video. Wow. What a difference. <laughs> <laughs> family friendly, which obviously meant no porn. But it also meant they would censor certain movies and not carry others because America. This was the W. Bush era, which was, once again, a great time for a kid, obviously queer, hadn't figured themselves out yet in the middle of central Pennsylvania. I worked at Blockbuster, and my favorite thing to do was reorganize the, the new release wall. There's something about organizing things in alphabetical order in space that just makes the neurodivergent hamsters in my head very happy. <laughs> the reason I say it was the worst time to work there was not just because of Netflix, which Blockbuster refused to buy. So it's their own fault. <laughs> Instead of buying Netflix, because who's ever going to buy movies through the mail, they tried to form their own Netflix. Blockbuster Total Access. If you don't remember this, bless you. <laughs> it was the bane of my existence. I wonder Much if, the, sorry, what? Marissa. I, I was, I was, I, did we get that here? It sounds like something. Maybe. I don't know. Remember, we only get 10% of what you guys get, so. <laughs> but I, I want to hear more. I'm curious. Like, I didn't know that Blockbuster censored movies. 
That's mm-hmm. new information for me. That's interesting. Like, what would they censor? Nudity or swear words or what? Well, there was straight up porn, as I've de- as we all know. There were also softcore films that made their way into family friendly places, quote unquote. Like mostly parodies. There would be like the big one was a pirates parody. I remember very well, and they cut it up to pieces in order to have it on the shelf. Like, <laughs> they, oh, weird! Just don't carry it, my dudes. Right. Yeah. So it was bullshit because people would come in and then yell at us about it as if we were the ones with the <laughs> buttons going through and censoring it. <laughs> That's what they paid you minimum wage for, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Blockbuster Total Access was convoluted. Netflix at the time was less simple than it is now, but still pretty simple. Pick movies, get sent movies, send them back. Blockbuster's Total Access was you could rent movies online, get them mailed to you, and then either send them back or you could return them to the store and switch them out for movies in the store because that's not complicated. (laughs) You wouldn't have to pay for them. You could take as many movies from the store as you had movies to return from online. And if you didn't, and if you did (laughs) not try to sell every single customer, this we had a tiny laptop in the store that barely worked. And if we didn't try to sit every single person down there, we would get in trouble. Every single one. And if the internet fritzed out, which it always did, we still had to try to sell it to them. This is the bad place. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the other other era that I worked for Blockbuster in is a notorious one. Mostly because it was bullshit, but also because everybody thought it meant, oh, I can just keep these now. If anybody watched the Super Bowl this particular year, they heard slash saw this. No more no more no more no more no more Yeah. No more late fees. The desperate attempt to stay relevant. <laughs> Here's the secret. No more late fees did not mean no more late fees. <laughs> <laughs> it, it meant, let's say you had a two-day rental. Before, you would be charged the price of the movie after you returned it late. Now, you wouldn't be charged that. However, if you kept it up to a week late, you owned it now. And if you tried to return it after that day, after your card was charged the full price for that DVD, VHS, or video game, yeah, you could get it refunded, almost. There was a restocking fee. (laughs) (laughs) Which would be, I think it was something minimal, like $1.35 or something like that. But it was still a fee for returning it late. Yeah. Which made everybody so happy. So after those three jobs and the years that I spent just trying to love movies and engage with people and not have to sell them bullshit they didn't want and instead just maybe recommend movies they might like and try to be pleasant, 
when I finally got a car that had something other than a radio tuner, I will leave you with one of my favorite sounds that I personally like. I don't know if anybody else misses this. I sure do. The tape deck <laughs> and, and tape boxes because cassette tapes, at least for me, I used to record off the radio and I used to make mixtapes with one of those stereos that had a CD player up top and two tape decks on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is an art to it. There was an art to making a mixtape. And I think that art is lost because playlists or even burn CDs just aren't the tangible same. <laughs> Thanks, Marissa. Thank you. That was lovely. What a lot of interesting facts we have all learned. It, uh, it really information. is. I'm just thinking now about all of the things, and your segment, Marissa, really brought it home. All of the things that were such a part of daily life, work, school, transportation, whatever for us, and that my children just have no frame of reference for. Yeah, we took them to the mall today, and it was <laughs> the first time we we had been in a mall in like a long time. Well, well aside from like the gimmicky okay. mall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of things that I that I were a daily part of our lives, I had a copy of. Care Bears 2, A New Generation, which we owned because we had rented it from Jumbo Video and had had it for weeks. And when we tried to return it, they said, you know, it would be cheaper if we just made this a sale. And my dad said, (laughs) okay. Time for a game of disappearing bears. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite, that that brought back so many memories. (laughs) That was a very good impression. Thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yep. <laughs> that seems like a good transition into what's everybody's something nice this month. I'll go ahead. It's funny you brought up the mall. <laughs> <laughs> because the reason I have compiled a lot of these sounds is because my play this year will involve dead malls. Mm. Nice. And I, I will not spoil most of it. But I will say, it is a story about how abandoned malls are actually the afterlife for people who worked in them. Oh, oh, oh. Are you going to have a parody song instead of Dead Mom? Dead Mall? Dead Mall! Dead Mall! <laughs> I don't know how... It, well, I guess Beetlejuice is a fairly popular musical these days. It's very is it? popular. Yeah? Okay. It was. It recently got some press. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason I got the idea was because I've become a really big fan of dead mall documentaries, not just for the neon and the, the art that some of these people have for putting together places that used to be extremely socially relevant, especially before we were old enough to do certain things or to even drive. That was back in the days where we could just be dropped off at the mall and the cops would not be called on my parents. Yeah, but yeah. seeing a lot of the seeing a lot of these places die, seeing a lot of the old labels, seeing a lot of the no longer functioning places, and just the empty vacancies, 
Like, I'm against malls as a concept. I'm an urbanist. I want downtowns to be relevant, and I don't want a false third place to be functioning as that place. But unfortunately, it was for many of us. Mm -hmm. We didn't destroy the downtown. Thanks, boomers. But we (laughs) dealt with what we had. (laughs) And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if these malls that are sitting abandoned was actually some kind of purgatory afterlife where everybody who worked there once upon a time now gets to work there without all the fucking customers. <laughs> Therefore, this year's play coming soon. Well, I'll be working oh, at Lucenza forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I worked there for like nine months, I think, but I worked over a Christmas season and that was hell. Yeah. Speaking of terrible soundtracks that repeat every hour, do you do you 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 don't have Licenza? It's it's a lingerie store. It's like Canada's lingerie store, but not classy at all. <laughs> and yeah, working there over the holiday season with like a bunch of clueless dudes trying to be like, uh, uh <laughs> um, I just I need I need some uh, a a Christmas present for your wife. Yes, of, of several years. We're, we're, uh, yes. So you want some lingerie for your wife? You know what? It wasn't even that. It was it was the the people buying lingerie for themselves, but they had their classic like five for twenty five table. Mm. So then you would just have mountains of thongs that you had to organize by size and color <laughs> and style, like mountains. And at the end of a Saturday with extended mall hours, it would just be like underwear everywhere. Oh no. <laughs> Thank you for the glimpse at my afterlife. Most <laughs> <laughs> welcome. Where can our listeners find more information? Oh, well, I release the yearly plays. This will be the sixth yearly play. And last year, a couple of you were on it. Yeah. So Yay. I release them on all my shows, but I also catalog them on a podcast channel very specifically for the plays. Because when I go hey, you're a new person. Would you like to listen to some of my audio drama? It's a lot easier than scrolling back through hundreds of episodes because my most active podcast is at 324. So that can be quite daunting at times. So if you want to listen to any of my previous work or just follow the audio dramas that I've made, you can find it on your podcast app at Queer Drama in Northern Minnesota. (laughs) Nice. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes too. Thank you. Uh, My something nice today is that all three of my loves and I went down to the zoo sort of randomly. There was a goodbye party for a couple of the polar bears that we have here. And I said, who wants to come look at bears with me? And everybody came along and we wandered around the zoo and it was wonderful. And it was kind of drizzly, so there was hardly anybody there. And we got to see tiny little monkeys. And Kyle told me not to pet anything except the tiny little monkeys. I'm allowed to pet them if I can catch them. <laughs> were the were the gibbons howling? No, we didn't see the gibbons. Somebody was cleaning their interior enclosure, so we think they were put away. Ah, that is a we wild sound, isn't it? Them. It yeah. is. Yeah. It is wild. Mm-hmm. It is yeah, just I'm like sure that is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we did hear that, but then we didn't go into the gibbon house right then. You can hear it from across the zoo. It's like mm-hmm. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it was really deep, though. What we heard. Yeah, yeah, they have true. a few. But mm-hmm. anyway. 
Okay, well, you keep yeah. us updated on your monkey catching adventures next time you go to the zoo, okay? I believe gibbons and, are and apes, she, not monkeys. Well, but she said the tiny okay. monkeys. She's okay. not allowed to catch or yes. touch the gibbons. No, I, okay. only the tiny squirrel monkeys were the only approved touchables. <laughs> okay, okay. My, my mistakes. I got I... distracted by the gibbons. <laughs> I love gibbons. And to be clear, two of the polar bears are moving to the Calgary Zoo. It's not like they're like, retiring them or anything. <laughs> 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 Those polar bears got too party. rich. They're not going to the farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to um, say, they're, they're moving to another facility. Yeah, gotta make way for more polar bears that are bound to come down. So, can I tell you Canadians a quick animal call story that you'll appreciate? Yes, yeah. sure. So Canadians know what a loon is, of course. Of course, of course. Yep, it's on our money. Yes, it's a dollar. Well, you think uh, somebody was getting murdered? People who did not grow up, say, in Canada or Minnesota, like nobody on this podcast in particular, didn't know what a loon was, let alone what it sounded like, <laughs> until the first time she was at a cabin in the North Woods. Uh-huh. And fortunately, I was not the one to ask what that sound was. Someone else who was also not from Minnesota asked, was that a wolf? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. oh and wow. Missing, and without missing a beat, the t- the owner of the cabin tuned her and said, Yeah, Laura, that's the dreaded loon wolf. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, like I I I think there's a lot of people living here in Winnipeg that have not had the opportunity to go out to the like that that part of the the province and wouldn't oh, sure. know a loon call because we sure. don't they're mostly in like the the southeastern part, right? Mhm. Like around Lake yeah. of the Woods yeah, and, yeah, and like White the Woods, Shell and Whiteshell all area, that. Yeah. Like so if you're from a different part of the province or you just don't leave the city often. I, I think there's a, f- a fair number of people, but we're a little bit more familiar with at least the existence of a loon. <laughs> the chances are you've actually heard it because as I've noticed from watching movies and TV shows, they use a loon call literally everywhere as background music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is the sound. If you see a lake, a shot of a lake, you will hear a loon call. Yeah. Any lake, anywhere. Like, <laughs> people around our age, though, or even people who still watch cable, they still have those, like, who's who in the hinterlands or whatever <gasps> little yes. moments. So that's where I think most people in Manitoba learned what a loon <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yep. Who? Oh, yeah. Those were great. They're so cute and so much better than a normal ad. <laughs> they are. Well, we've got to fill that, that CanCon somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh... Who else has it something nice? I do. I, this past week, I wrote two huge exams. I wrote my last third year medicine exam and my first fourth year medicine exam. And it sucked. But, and I I don't have the results back, but I think that they both went quite well. So I am less than a year out from finishing my degree and looking Yay. looking toward the MCCQE, the Medical Council of Canada qualifying exam, something like that. Or medical, I don't remember what it stands for, something like that. But I only have one exam left in med school, and I have more, more than 100 behind me, so. Wow. <laughs> Congrats. 
Thanks. It That's feels huge. good to actually to, to like look toward an evening with my family and think, you know, I don't actually have to study. Yeah. <laughs> tonight. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be really nice. Yeah. Okay. Last weekend, in what was supposed to be a three-hour small project, Dave, with a little <laughs> bit of help from me, replaced the back door to our house. It was supposed Ooh, to be nice. small. Those who have heard our whining about this 95-year-old house that and how nothing is square and nothing is straight. I mean, none of us are straight either, but whatever. Um, <laughs> It was a monumental effort that included getting the only small size door in the west part of the city and putting the walls back on the floor. Um, yeah. Building was, a new now, like part to the wall. Putting, putting <laughs> yeah. the walls back on the floor, yeah. Yeah, it was supposed yep. to be yep. replace the door. It ended up being all weekend plus. It sounds uh, like it was, a, a rebuild the entryway kind of project. It was, uh-huh. yeah, it was make the back porch structurally stru- structurally functional again. So I'm not scared to walk in it. <laughs> but now it's structurally functional, and we have a back door that shuts and locks, and our house is awesome. actually, actually has some security. Yay! Nice. If you're li- if you're from my insurance company and listening to this, no, you aren't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But it's all fixed now. It's great. This is wonderful. <laughs> that that is a good we feeling. Going, we are going to be the custodians at the woods of the, the whole time, getting updates every couple hours. Oh, hit another snag. Oh, hit another snag. Oh, found another disaster. Oh, this is harder than I expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a thing. But it's done, and Dave is a hero. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. My something nice is that I or we got to go out last night and we went to a concert for a local Manitoba artist who is one of my favorite performers. We went to see Begonia. She is amazing. Her voice is just incredible to listen to. And it was a lovely, fun show. And It was a nice feeling. She's from Winnipeg. The Winnipeg music scene, I'm not a part of it, but I know that it's it's quite tight-knit. It's really homey. There's a lot of support for each other. And so her show was just really full of people who are from Winnipeg and like her in like a homecoming kind of way. It was it was a great show. The music sounded fantastic. The opener was I quite enjoyed too. That was Witch Prophet, R and B hip hop kind of stuff really talented as well and it was it was just a really lovely night it was a concert that felt good and yeah yeah so i i will always recommend begonia's music check her out yeah the music is really it's cool it's a very different sound than a lot of popular music and she is one of those artists where like she is just as good live as she is on the recordings like and her you it's hard to believe like how talented how how talented a live singer she is. She really is and just everything and and her band is fantastic as well. They all just work so well together and don't miss a beat and super great. So let her get famous, I guess. She she deserves it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining me tonight, everyone. Yeah, thanks for coming on the pod again, Marissa. 
Thank you so much for having me as always. Oh, I was just going to ask Marissa where people could find her and her work in the world if she would like them to do so. I am on a lot of podcasts and I produce and edit a lot more. You can find most of my podcasts at my Spreaker site under Marissa Alexa McCool. And if you just type Marissa McCool into your podcast app, a lot of them will come up. I also have, as I said, the catalog of my audio plays, which are my babies. Those I put the most amount of effort and mind power and they take the longest and they're they're just the most important art that I make. Queer drama at Northern Minnesota. Obviously, it only gets updated once a year, but those pieces of work are what mean the most to me. Awesome. Wonderful. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. Share it with a friend! Life. Don't talk to me about life. If you... Hmm, I'm going to try and put a picture in the chat. I don't know if it'll work. Nope. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's a you know visual medium, medium of podcasting. Sure, yeah. sure. We'll edit that out, but... Um... There's an ophthalmologist named Dr. Glaukenflecken. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, You're a diplodocus. Go ahead. No, it was just a joke. Never mind. Sorry. I was going to say, um, even after this whole segment, I will not remember which one is more correct. Well, just ask me. Happy that they both exist, (laughs) I guess. Don't well. What you all you need to know is that if somebody comes up to you and goes, "Brontosaurus isn't a thing," you can say, "Yes, it is," and just walk away <laughs> and know that you're not wrong. <laughs> all right. Thank you for that take. Just away. tell them it. Yeah. Just tell them it's pure Diplodocus um, erasure. That's my favorite. <laughs> so if you were fi- trying to find a tolerable radio station, here's what it would sound like. Come on, sound. Work. <laughs>